0: All right, and so if you can see there, there is a poll right now going on. If you want to join us at slido.com, put in the number 9949 and let us know if you had a problem with wheat stem maggot and corn following your wheat or rye cover crop in, in 2017. This was a problem for some farmers last year and um, strange situation we hadn't seen. Typically it was situations where the wheat or the rye cover was terminated at planting or after planting. That's something that growers in the area of the state that I serve have kind of gone to. And so it was a surprise thing last year for us. So joining us today to speak on this is Dr. Justin McNeegan. And Justin, you've been with us a year and a half or almost two years now
1: that's right yeah it's, it's been yeah. a busy year and a half or so, so.
0: yeah because yeah. it seems like every problem we find we we give it to you and you just take it on <laughs> so we appreciate yeah, that
1: okay. yeah. Yeah. I said I was looking for things so
0: <laughs> yeah, very good all right so I'm just gonna go ahead and stop sharing my screen Justin and um, just letting everyone know you have questions throughout the webinar feel free to type your questions in the chat box and then um, there may be other times when Justin asks for questions so feel free to just you can unmute your mic if you prefer to speak instead of typing as well so with that I'm just gonna stop the poll for right now and stop sharing and let you take over Justin
1: great thanks Jenny All right. Can everybody see my screen? How does that look?
0: Um, it's still coming up. There it is.
1: All right. All right. So welcome everyone. I saw somebody checked off the yes box and this may have been, I can't see who it is, but it may have been somebody I worked with this, this past, uh, spring, but, uh, if it's not, I'd certainly like to talk to you afterwards. Uh, as you're going to find out uh, throughout this presentation, this is something that, uh, caught us off guard and we didn't have a lot of literature to work off of, uh, so you're going to see a lot of questions, but um, I think it's important that at least we provide you some indication of our best recommendations coming into this spring and how to manage it and also looking for some collaborations on on helping to understand this. And so uh, Bob Wright is also listed on here uh, on the talk and, and Bob accompanied me, uh, he's a, a entomology uh, professor here at UNL that accompanied me on this this survey of wheat stem mega that I'll get towards the end of this talk. Uh, And then Gabby Carmona is uh, a graduate student of mine, a master's student who works on cover crops. And uh, she came across this just a month or two after arriving. And and so certainly a lot of the data you're going to see is uh, from the hard work of of Gabby. Um, I wanted to somewhat generalize this talk a little bit uh, in part because I want to cover some beneficial insects in, in cover crop systems, um, because they do exist, uh, this is not meant to be a, you know, a negative on cover crops, they're an important part of the system. Um, and then some other pests, because uh, if you're aware of those pests and, and know how to scout for them, then you can make informed decisions as you transition uh, between cover crop and, uh, and your cash crop. And you'll find the majority of this talk is really focused on uh, going from soybeans to a cover crop, in um, particular grasses in this case, uh, to corn. Um, and the reason that's such a heavily focused system is that seems to be where the, a lot of the literature points at, at potential problems. Uh, so I'll just kind of dig in here and uh, I'll, I'll periodically stop for questions um, and, uh, and certainly encourage them at the end. So um, this slide for many of you that grow, grow cover crops and, or are involved in them, this is probably nothing new to you. Uh, this, is, this is the reason I think a lot of people are doing it. Reduced soil erosion is a, is a big component Uh, Certainly weed competition uh, and, and, you know, dealing with those resistant weeds, limited nitrate leaching, um, you know, increased soil organic matter. And then where insects really come into this system is the vegetational diversity, uh, both temporal, meaning over time, or spatially, just the fact that they're present in other parts of the system. Um, And those ecosystem services would be the beneficial uh, side of that. And really, you know, as you look at anything that's a characteristic for a beneficial insect, it can also be a potential for a pest insect. Um, And so we'll kind of cover a little bit uh, on the basis of each one of those as we go through this talk. Here's a series of studies, um, you know, divided on each side that have evaluated the influence of cover crops on insects. There are certainly more than this. Uh, It's just kind of a sampling Uh, Of that, but you can see beneficial insects. We have a lot of predators in these systems, and I'm going to hit some of these studies directly and kind of show you what they found. Um, And then some pest-related studies. You can see some of these studies are older, uh, meaning you know the late 80s or early 90s. uh, You know, see even some just recently in the 2000s here. But the issue with any older publication is is not the fact that you know it was done at that time. It's the practices at that time uh, don't necessarily reflect what we do now. And so you're going to see a few studies where you might question it relative to your operation. Uh, And I guess I'd I'd encourage your skepticism. It really uh, points to the importance that we evaluate this system using today's management practices. And you're going to see some of that at at the end. Uh, So we have seed feeders. Uh, By those, I mean the ones that eat uh, weed seeds, which could be really beneficial uh, for reducing weed banks uh, between years. Um, And then we have uh, a series of pests some uh, biology-based, others actually based in, um, in, in the studies listed above. So I've kind of harvested from both sides of those. So we look at beneficial insects. Uh, the vegetation that's present alters their mobility, uh, creates alternative sources of prey. So it brings them in possibly earlier prior to the cash crop being established, which means they're there when a pest first arrives and can keep that population below any treatment threshold that would require an insecticide. And then they make these little microclimates and again like I mentioned earlier you could take beneficial or replace it with pests and, and have uh, the same type of thing except the prey would be then the host uh, in that case. Um, this is a complicated system uh, and that's uh, somewhat of a good thing in, in that it may limit the possibility for, for problems but it also makes it really difficult for us to understand and provide recommendations for. It. Uh, so certainly cover crop species will influence uh, some of this and that can be a management practice you could make as a decision um, other influences or practices that you have control over the planting or termination timings um, And certainly we're floating into uh, NRCS guidelines for termination and meeting EQIP program requirements, but uh, these are things that um, We're starting these this research programs to help that uh, And coordinate that that type of, of understanding and, and uh, the reasons behind it termination method uh, i probably the large majority of people that I'm talking to are using roundup or or um, maybe a paraquat if they're terminating earlier, though I think 97% of growers are usually using a Roundup application to terminate these or glyphosate. Uh, And then the environmental conditions around this really influence it. So, you know, uh, for those that are on that have had wheat stem mega problems last year, um, we've had a few isolated cases, but uh, it it could lead to the fact that we just had these unique environmental conditions uh, during that particular year. Um, and uh, may not occur this year, even though we may have the insects present, they may emerge at the wrong time. So just as an example of something like that. So here's a, a study uh, done by Lundgren and Fergan uh, from South Dakota in 2010 uh, on western corn rootworms. So a major pest and problem in Nebraska. Uh, and uh, this, is, this is stuff that you know, we would all like to see. They had fall planted uh, slender wheatgrass. There's not a lot of that planted here in Nebraska. It begs the question as to whether or not rye or wheat would do similar things, but it was planted in early September, uh, terminated at corn planting, and the graphs you see on there, the the 2007 data, they had 2008 as well, uh, shows they really had no significant differences in pest abundance uh, between the cover crop and bare soil. But once you got to third instar, they saw a significant difference and they have a numerical reduction, at least just, you know, between the averages in the adult populations. And so this is an interesting paper uh, in, in the fact that it at least documented that. And the source cause of it uh, was from their hand collections that they did, uh, where they were finding greater uh, predator abundance, mostly carabid beetles. These are little ground beetles, black beetles that you'll see running around on the soil surface. As, uh, as well as some other types of, of beetles that were present. But a strong relationship between these predators and a reduction in third uh, instar western corn rootworm. And if I was a grower, the first thing I would ask is, well, did this translate to anything uh, economic in terms of uh, a benefit to, to my bottom line? And the closest we get with this particular study is the root rating uh, damages, which would uh, correlate uh, with with final yield. There was no yields taken on this. But if you look at that graph, uh, in both years of the study, they have a significantly higher uh, root rating damage. So if root ratings were, uh, the higher the number, the more the damage occurred to those plants, and then lower numbers indicate less damage. So it's certainly an indication by the study that there could have been some economic benefit uh, from these uh, beetles being present in the system. And a good reason to scout and manage these systems and to avoid any applications that are unnecessary because these beetles are likely to be taken out by those applications Um, here's another one on ground beetles this is Dunbar et al 2017 uh, rye cover crop and soybeans to corn uh, systems they evaluate both systems this was an on-farm trial it was terminated two weeks prior to planting and uh, for those of you that are in Nebraska and in the eastern half of the state that's a pretty early termination date relative to NRCS guidelines to about five days prior to Uh, but they found greater abundance of ground beetles in June and July so later in the season Uh, And there was a diverse group of beetles found in this that spanned from seed feeders uh, through uh, predators. And so, uh, you know, less captured on the economics of this. It's hard to do that. You'll see another study here later. Uh, But at least an indication they're present and they're providing these these free services, essentially, uh, to these systems. Okay, so um, you're going to see this this, uh, system that I have set up on the top here several times uh, throughout this talk. And and the reason for placing it in there is the variation in how each system was managed. And so in the case of this particular uh, system, um, which was uh, a, uh, done by Coke et al uh, from Minnesota, um, they used a range of different uh, cover crop types. Uh, the rye was planted in the fall. Uh, soybeans in this case were planted in the spring, uh, or sorry, uh, yeah, were planted in the spring, but the cover crop was actually mowed off after the soybeans had come off. So, not a practice that at least I've seen is typical uh, to the state or at least to Nebraska. Uh, but, um, you know, you could, you could make some inferences to whether or not termination would, would type would influence a response like that. And so uh, they, they looked at soybean aphid populations as well as predator populations uh, during this study. And if you look at the graph for soybean aphids, uh, you see time is on the bottom axis and then on the, the vertical axis um, is this aphids per plant. And the with rye, uh, that's the big one to focus in on, uh, much lower populations below even uh, any economic threshold um, with the cover crop being present. Uh, and so that, that makes perfect sense and much higher populations without rye. Uh, the issue is when we look over at the predator side and it seems almost backwards, right? Uh, so you'd expect higher predator numbers in the uh, with cover crop or with rye uh, treatment, but instead it actually remains relatively low uh, and it took me a while to figure this out, but they were there early in advance. Uh, that's the slight bumps you see at the start of the season, keeping those aphid populations low. Uh, and then they, they moved between plots uh, over the course of the season. So they identified or saw or moved into larger populations uh, of soybean aphids and essentially stuck around those plots. So the numbers are a population response to aphids uh, that showed up in that, uh, that without rye treatment later in the season. Uh, but certainly a good indication of the value of this uh, for soybean aphid and in particular to the northeastern part of the state where we typically see uh, higher numbers. Uh, and uh, just a series of, of insects cataloged in that um, as predators. Uh, they have uh, lady beetles, surfeit flies, uh, and then these minute pirate bugs, which uh, many of you, if you were swatting yourself uh, last fall, uh, killing these, there was quite a few that came in at least to my yard and fed on me for a while. Uh, but these are tremendous predators in these types of systems, in, in particular, the minute pirate bug. Okay, uh, so, you know, there are more uh, uh, examples of beneficial insects and in cover crops, but a lot of the calls I get are focused on pest insects. And so I want to spend the rest of this talk, as well as the I think the reason a lot of you are are on this call, is about wheat, stem, maggot, uh, focusing on what we know is in the system and what could be a problem in the system. And so here's our system setup. Um, you know sources of risk for pests if you're going to generally categorize them if the host range spends both the cover crop and cash crop that certainly creates a level of risk Um, and in some cases not even a known host but it's a host that they could feed on in complete development Um, a suitable overwintering site so it's not even a host for that insect you know whether it's rye or or some other crop but it's not even a host it's just a suitable place for them to exist uh, during the winter Uh, and then uh, termination depending on the timing of termination what that insects doing there if it's just existing there overwintering or it's actually feeding on that uh, cover crop um, Maybe uh, that termination date may affect whether or not they stick around until the cash crop is planted uh, So uh, first one we'll cover this is actually part of a, a study. So I'm, I'm going to build through the biology of this particular uh, insect as well as uh, two others and then the study that actually showed in cover crops what that might look like And so black cutworm uh, does not overwinter in Nebraska. It's in the southern states. It comes up each year. We can monitor this with pheromones. Uh, But it comes up and lays eggs into spring vegetation, usually dense vegetation. It could be weedy fields, uh, just a cover crop. Um, And it's relatively easy to identify the adults if you decide to to monitor for them as they come in. Uh, We do do some monitoring for them in the state. And so here's some uh, uh, captures during the night. And uh, once we reach a biofix, which is so many insects over the course of two nights, uh, or, or moths coming into the state, uh, then we actually start this, this, essentially this time clock that you see ticking to the right here under the UNL uh, uh, updated on CropWatch, just below that text is a table. And so that biofix is there with significant moth capture. And then really uh, we're, we're counting down the days to where we see uh, symptoms uh, develop, initial symptoms of, of insect feeding. Uh, and then later, uh, when they actually start causing economic damage. And so, this degree day formula uh, is, uh, that's a, a max and a min temperature, uh, minus 50, much like corn, uh, can be used uh, to indicate when they might occur. And so, for any crop scout or anybody scouting fields, uh, we can send out an alert across the state when we reach that 91 through 311 degree days. And that's when you can start scouting for the first initial signs of feeding. Uh, which is a great to estimate the possible pressure out there, um, or if there's going to be pressure. Uh, any wilted plants is usually a little bit later, once we get to the 4th, 5th, and 6th, and actually start cutting the plants. Um, and that 3 to 5% damage threshold is where we might need to take action on something like that. Um, these insects do vary by temperature. Uh, this represents all the different larval instars and then potential can, uh, cut plants by stage of development. So very small plants that can cut far more than they can as the plant gets to say the V4 stage, which is the furthest to the right. Uh, but this cut estimation is based on 72 degrees Fahrenheit. And we deal with a lot of different conditions during the spring. And so if you look at this and consider, well, which one of these would have more potential damage, uh, 60 degrees or 80 degrees, which are temperatures we could certainly experience, Uh, It's the 60-degree temperatures we worry about the most because the corn plant is growing relatively slow, yet the insects are still developing and feeding, and so they'll consume more plants uh, over that course than they would if it was higher temperatures. This is something you can use as a risk estimation uh, for something like that. Uh, Here's a a photo from Nathan Mueller. Uh, This is not a cover crop. It was actually a fall-planted cover crop uh, to oats, which terminates during the winter. Uh, And they'd left a weedy section of the field. So this is much like the vegetation accumulation we'd see in the spring. uh, And uh, had had removed this uh, fairly late in this case and uh, saw uh, large numbers of black cutworm here. And uh, as you can see by the photo, uh, significant sand reduction. And in fact, they had just part of the field. So if you look to the the top right of that photo, you can see that's an area where they didn't have uh, any uh, source of vegetation that would be attractive to the adults. Okay, so another one is true armyworm, still focusing on this original study that we had. Uh, They lay eggs in in, uh, early spring in the vegetation, usually in the the bottom part of the canopy. Uh, They have white spots and dark lines, look quite a bit different, Um, uh, but they're very similar uh, uh, to this particular, uh, or to a black cutworm and how they uh, come up from the the south. And so similar type of scouting for these particular insects, they they feed differently. Uh, So they feed on the edge of the leaf rather than within and don't cut off the plants. Uh, but, and they feed for three weeks and a lot of consumption occurs later in their cycle, like a lot of insects. Uh, and so this is one that you might see early and then can, can make an estimation of, of whether or not control is needed. Uh, 25% or more of plants damage will require some control and they get difficult as they get larger. Um, but a number of, of biologicals are available for this particular insect and cool wet conditions really favor any of the per, uh, predators, parasitoids, fungi or viruses that might be present. And so this asks the question about cover crops and the role of beneficial insects in mitigating insect populations like this. Uh, The last one we'll cover before we hit the study, which is just uh, briefly uh, to go over it, uh, is common stock borer. And this one is different than the others in the fact that its movement occurs in the fall. Uh, And so I did get a report uh, from the Minden area on common stock borer or suspected common stock borer in a cover crop. Uh, We couldn't coordinate where the field was, uh, but certainly this is one to keep your eye on just based on the biology of this particular insect likes to lay its eggs in smooth brome and, and ragweeds and other things in the fall and they overwinter as eggs and they begin their development in the spring and usually feed on the grass host they're on uh, and then whether that grass host is terminated or too small for them to complete their development uh, they usually move off of that at some point during the spring and this is where they can potentially move into a corn crop. So this one also has a degree day associated with it. Bob Wright I think posted the the map with the degree days for this uh, last year, when it started to be, uh, we needed to start scouting for it. Uh, there you can see the degree day accumulations. It's different than corn, in the fact that it's 41 degrees and not 50. Um, but again, uh, we can post these kinds of things to crop watch and keep uh, those of you informed when to scout. Scouting for this particular insect occurs at 13 to 1400 degree days. It's really important to scout then. Once it gets into the plant and you start seeing symptoms like the dead heart uh, that we see here uh, on the screen, then it's really too late to get any chemistries to them. Uh, and there are BTs that are effective against this uh, particular insect, but they're really only rated at suppression. And so if they're large enough when they move, they can uh, certainly cause some damage. And there are some estimations of thresholds based on 200 bushel corn and, and $3 per acre. And so you can see it varies by the development stage. So if you do find yourself in this situation, you know, make sure you're getting that development stage and determining whether or not it's worthwhile to treat this if it shows up. In a cover crop, it's gonna, not going to come from any field edge. Uh, which is what we would expect these to come out of grassy borders uh, to be spread throughout the field and so i would certainly appreciate appreciate a phone call if you're finding something like this so we can document uh, whether or not this is is a potential risk uh so dunbar in 2016 uh did this this study uh, they used uh roundup as as a termination method 14 to 21 days prior to planting and then they sample weekly all the way through v8 so this very much matches our current system they monitored for adults uh, in these, these particular systems. And so adult true armyworms were monitored and, and populations were significantly higher uh, moving into the co- cover crop treatment, at least in one of the two years of the study. Uh, they're very similar uh, in uh, 2014, but different in 2015. So it, it goes again to that environmental variations. Uh, we might see and why uh, the various list of possibilities and why they were driven into this, uh, that year and not the previous year. but higher numbers, indicating that the cover crop was a draw for them. Uh, Here's black cutworm, uh, higher populations for it as well in one of the two years of the study. Uh, And so you can see both insects pose potential uh, threat because of the increased adult populations uh, coming up to and through termination. Uh, So uh, questions here as far as as their potential. And So here's the true armyworm larvae uh, from the field border uh, moving into the cover crop. And you can see the field edge there. There are uh, some, but uh, significantly higher populations as you move into uh, the rye cover crop treatment relative to a no cover treatment. And that's the population of insect capture uh, between cover crop and, and no cover. So pretty obvious from this one, even in both years of the study, they saw higher populations. If we look at black cutworm, uh, even though we saw significantly higher uh, adult uh, presence in a in cover crop, it didn't transcend to, uh, to the larvae that actually would have been present in the feeding. And this asks the question about biological control, you know, obviously these are both present in the same system, but for whatever reason, uh, black cutworm did not make it through as a significant pest in either case. Uh, common stock borer was different between both years of the study. It was actually higher in the no cover in 2015. Uh, so th- again, those environmental variations and why this occurs uh, speaks to the complexity of the issue, uh, but uh, really... Uh, Uh, underlines and and bolds the need for scouting these systems uh, as you you transition. You wanna get those benefits and you wanna avoid any uh, negative impacts that might occur from that. Uh, Here's just a photo uh, to to remind you the potential devastation for something like this. Adam Barenhorst in South Dakota took this photo um, of the uh, true armyworm infestation uh, from a cover crop. So it's certainly something to look look at in the spring or, or watch for. We'll move on to stink bugs. Uh, they've been increasing in their abundance and, and spread uh, throughout really the Midwest over the last couple of years. And Tom Hunt, who's the entomologist in the northeastern part of the state, uh, as well as Bob Wright, work on, on this particular uh, organism. Uh, and they have a graduate student, a PhD student, uh, that a blessing that's working on this as well. And so, um, you know, for this particular insect, we're looking at really an overwintering site for it. Uh, typically, they're in wooded or grass borders as well as cover crops. So this is one that could come into a system like this. So uh, as documented with field in fields with increased risk, any no-till fields or cover crops prior to the planting or corn following wheat are, are systems like that. And I, I know Tom had a problem field he visited a couple of years ago in the Northeast uh, related to stink bugs with significantly higher stink bug populations in, in the cover crop uh, uh, field. And then, uh, you know, in cotton, they found them as well. This is in the, you know, obviously further south of us, but it didn't impact cotton yield. So, again, it's following through to whether or not we actually see a significant problem. Um, You know, just to highlight uh, how difficult and complex this can be, this is two different stink bug species. Uh, The one that uh, is below the soybeans is actually a beneficial insect. Uh, It's the soldier, spine soldier stink bug. And so these are, uh, I find these at least every year I've been here, I can find them. In, uh, in soybean fields, uh, certainly. So they're present, they, they've actually got a faster life cycle than brown stink bug, uh, and they can be I- identified uh, by looking at their stylet as well as their antenna, and they're uh, thicker with the uh, spine soldier stink bug in, in both cases. And so uh, just be careful about pulling the trigger on something like this, make sure you've got the right ID. Uh, you can certainly uh, you know, send, send me the photo if you want, and, and I can identify it for you, or, or find Blessing who's becoming quite an expert in identifying uh, different stink bug species. Uh, this is Jim McGill, uh, near Waverly, took this photo and sent it, or this video, and sent it to me. And uh, this is a stink bug actually attempting to take on a Japanese beetle. And so, you know, they, uh, Japanese beetle's a big issue, so just another reason to uh, to uh, give these a break if you see them or account for them uh, in those particular systems. That's a pretty equal-weighted battle there. I'm not sure how it would have turned out. Um, so, uh, looking at this system and and the potential impacts, uh, you know, in corn, uh, stink bugs have the potential all year to cause problems uh, relative to soybeans, which is a reproductive stage. They can kill small plants early, uh, and uh, they have this can cause excessive tillering because of the, what they inject into the plant, and this repeated hole pattern, as you see here. Uh, and so there are some thresholds now for this, and that coke ar- article that I mentioned earlier, there's a review paper on this. So if you're looking for more literature, uh, those thresholds are listed there, but you can see them on the right-hand side of your screen, 5% damage, uh, brown stink bug present, or uh, greater than 10% infested, the corn is less than two feet tall. Uh, for later in the season, depending on the timing of infestation, they can cause uh, abnormalities in the ears as well as damage the kernels, and the thresholds are higher prior to uh, or during ear forming uh, as well as pollen shed, and then a little bit lower, one stink bug for every four plants as you move into pollen shed through blister. Uh, in, in soybeans, really later in the season, Uh, reproductive stage, uh, causing seed and pod damage. That's typically when they show up in soybean fields. There's also another insect besides just the brown stink bug, green stink bug, which is just not overwinter here, um, can show up at that time. And so their impact by cover crops should obviously be less, but I mentioned them purely so you're not just looking for brown stink bug. Uh, They can cause delayed maturity, especially if it's an early maturing, uh, early pod forming stages, as well as the state green syndrome. So you can see 5% of plants exhibiting symptoms or 10 stink bugs in 25 sweeps. be a reason to uh, possibly control this. Uh, The last one before we kind of get into our uh, wheat stem maggot uh, issue is uh, sea corn maggot. In this study I I think just by the very uh, nature of termination can be eliminated but if anybody is doing this this is certainly something to watch for. Um, If you're in proximity to a feedlot and you've got a lot of decomposing material either you've put down manure or uh, you know, used tillage equipment to terminate that cover crop, which would really negate a lot of the benefits of the cover crop. But if you were doing that um, and, and had cold temperatures around that period, this is certainly an insect that could cause some problems. Uh, there are a lot of seed treatments for it, but any unemerged or weak seedlings um, can do that. And the adult emergence, which is listed on here for the degree days, uh, shows you when the adults will be present. So planting into, uh, or at that time, would certainly increase your risk and so you can avoid the fly uh, uh, dates uh, for this particular insect uh, if you're concerned about it. Now here's a, that study uh, where they looked at herbicide as well as conventional tillage methods. And you can see the conventional tillage had much higher numbers of sea corn maggots. So they're really interested in that decomposing material uh, uh, for, for the reason for coming into this. And of course, this is a 1989 study. Um, and so it, it kind of highlights uh, that, that these are not necessarily practices that we're using uh, today. And then uh, just as far as the other cover crops, they did have a few other different types in here, crimson clover and hairy vetch. Uh, they did see increased damage uh, from spotted cucumber beetles uh, or southern corn rootworm here that you can see in the top photo. Uh, that's, that's one that came in a little bit higher numbers in the no-till uh, scenarios with those. So just uh, one other one to watch for in that particular system. Some other potential pests I'll just cover on a single slide here before we get uh, to uh, wheat stem maggot. Bean leaf beetles, another one overwintering, you know, it's just looking for cover. Uh, clovers or broadleaf crops can certainly increase its potential. Uh, this will be going into soybeans. And then wireworms, I did get a phone call this spring as uh, wireworms were uh, a problem. And, you know, uh, this uh, is an cent- insect that uh, tends to have a longer life cycle. Uh, we don't know, I, or at least I'm not aware of all the different species that are in Nebraska, so there may be some shorter ones. Uh, but it likes to deposit eggs into, uh, into areas with high CO2 emissions or uh, anything that's a weedy field or cereal-type cover crop. Um, so damage really depends on the temperature. So even if you have these in your system, if your soil temperatures are warm at planting, they typically move down the profile, uh, and they're, they're not much of a problem. They're really hard to sample for. Uh, you can not put obate systems, and you can look that up online, and it'll tell you how to do that. But this is one that uh, when they set up studies, they tend to use a large number of reps, uh, just because it can be so spotty within the field, okay, so uh, we 're going to move into uh, what was an issue this past spring uh, with uh, an emerging pest in in a cover crop system, and uh, I got the initial phone calls on this on on may twenty third uh, and Gabby and I went out uh, and initially, when I got some of the photos, I was thinking we were probably looking at common stock borer until I got a photo of the the uh, larvae, which appeared to be a maggot i didn 't have a head capsule, and so that Uh, certainly highlighted that we weren't weren't dealing with with, uh, common stock borer. And so we were seeing similar symptoms to common stock borer, dead heart symptoms. And as we moved and progressed through our sampling period, uh, we came across some tillering plants, uh, which you can see in the photo to the bottom there. But we developed this scale uh, in part because we wanted to categorize the damage of these plants um, and then uh, subsequently keep these uh, to determine uh, what emerged from them. And so you can see we have a non-damaged plant, which was in all fields, not not 100% of plants were infested. We had some where we had actually sampled and it showed very little signs of damage. It just had uh, some initial insect feeding. Uh, And so those could be visible as that leaf emerged. And so that's partly what that photo shows. Uh, We did have some that were showing signs of chlorosis where they'd actually girdled off that that leaf and it was beginning to uh, start its processes in essence. We had damaged centers and necrosis and then eventually led to dead centers. Uh, which you see in some of the photos here, and, and then, after we brought these back, uh, some of them literally outright died uh, in, in our uh, samples to obtain the adults, and so we had that category rating as we went through uh, to adult emergence. Uh, we saw this in uh, really the, the south central part of the state, but we also had one uh, field up north. Uh, this is not the first report of this in Nebraska in corn. Uh, we had it in northeast Nebraska in both two thousand and five and two thousand and fifteen, and Wayne Onisorg was uh, reported some of this in 2015, um, uh, we had in 2017, uh, we took uh, 25 plants from the first five, five fields we sampled. So you can look at the numbers on the, on the map there. We took those and we, we put those into small uh, cylindrical containers, uh, which we could then put into a growth chamber. And we caged those because we were interested in, in, first of all, rearing out to collect the adults because it's really hard to identify uh, the maggots. Uh, and those adults began emerging in mid-June, which surprisingly matches some of the 1930s literature uh, that we had. So, And really across all the sites, you're going to see it. They all emerged at similar times. So Jim Kalish identified it for us uh, as, as we'd stem maggot. And so that really kind of set us on a track to, to, to get some of the literature, be confident that we're not dealing with something that's uh, different. Um, but uh, over the next few slides here, I want to describe a bit of the life cycle, uh, because I got a lot of questions about that when I was in the field uh, this past spring, uh, and how to ID this, because uh, for some of you, we'll be asking for your help uh, in the next few weeks here to, uh, to to gain a better understanding of this. And so uh, here's the wheat stem mega life cycle. Uh, the adults, uh, you know, live anywhere between 2 and 19 days. They do have a pre-overposition period of a couple of days, and then they begin laying eggs, and can lay up to 25 eggs. Uh, you know, those eggs will sit there for about 4 to 11 days and then hatch. Um, I do have a a penny here, so I I was telling Jenny at the start of this talk, I've been looking at pennies and uh, Trying to give you something that if you could carry in your pocket, you'd be able to give an estimation of the size uh, Of this particular insect, but they're quite smaller about 0.2 inches in length And so if you do catch some in the field uh, They are relatively easy to identify as far as their characteristics, but this will help you uh, to know their size They have those three black stripes on their thorax Uh, You can see in the the larger blown-up photo these uh, bright green eyes uh, and uh, relatively easy, I think, uh, compared to at least what I saw uh, this, this past year. Um, the, uh, the larvae are actually a little bit larger uh, when they're fully mature, uh, and so you can see they're about 0.28 inches, so if you're harvesting or looking at plants or damaged plants for some reason, uh, you, could, you could identify those. They start out initially quite small. Uh, I'm, I'm going in, in a category of, of confidence of finding these things. Uh, So a newly hatched larvae is is actually quite small, about 0.07 inches in in length. Um, And so uh, they go through these three instars. That's the newly hatched all the way through to the third instar, which is the large larvae. And the the range in days is really probably associated with temperature. Uh, And so we can crank through three to four generations in Nebraska. Uh, But uh, they pupate and then they emerge as adults uh, again. And here's the eggs. We've been looking for these for the past two weeks. Uh, we haven't found any, but they are certainly the smallest part of their life cycle at 0.04 a- inches. So here's uh, the adult emergence. Uh, did vary by uh, field location. Uh, we got uh, um, you know roughly 13 or, or 16 to 64% of adults emerged depending on the field. Uh, we recovered quite a few larvae between 13 and 80% of symptomatic plants depending on the field. Uh, and I know Jenny was really good at finding these multiple larvae per plant. Uh, we did find a few uh, here uh, at, at the entomology department. We probably should have got and Jenny to come down and go through some with us. Um, but uh, we did have multiple adults emerge, so that certainly confirms more than one larvae per plant. Uh, and uh, so you can see the data there, and uh, really our interest behind this, uh, it's interesting to note they all emerged at the same time, um, which you know kind of suggests things were a little bit collapsed uh, besides, I guess, field two emerging a couple days prior. Um, But it it suggests that this is a relatively tight time frame when they showed up in these cover crops. Um, You know, we're trying to piece out the the timing of infestation on these. Uh, And so this is really what this graph was kind of focused on was looking at uh, larval size that we were pulling from these plants we brought back from the field and those damage scores that you saw earlier. Uh, So going really from no damage um, or very little damage all the way through to Uh, what would be uh, heavily damaged plants. And you can see here uh, on the graph, we have no correlation, meaning that as we increase in damage, the size doesn't relate to that. Uh, And uh, most people would ask, why I even have the graph, but the graph really tells us kind of two things, Um, neither of which really help us at the moment, but it does provide a bit of guidance. Uh, We could have such different damage to size relationships because the movement of different sized larvae from the cover crop Uh, to uh, corn. So if we had different developmental stages that were capable of moving, uh, they would move in and begin to damage those plants. Um, And as a result, we would see a different sized larvae uh, relative to damage. Another possibility uh, is that we have larval movement between corn plants, and that's typical of their their normal behavior, at least on wheat or rye, uh, is that they may start in in one particular tiller and then move to another to complete development uh, depending on how a large the tiller is and so this this could be part of that artifact as well uh, But we figured we'd start to get a handle on something like that So wheat stem maggot is is widely distributed throughout the wheat growing regions of North America uh, it's likely native according to uh, The literature or what's been documented by others and first noted in 1821 in Pennsylvania. Uh, I put up the list of, of uh, potential or common pests or common hosts of this particular uh, insect. And so you can see wheat, rye, and barley are on there. Wheat and rye were in our survey, that you'll see here in a second. We also have a number of wild grasses, and so that indicates that they're, they're already present in our system at least in surviving in these grasses. But there's only a few brief mentions about them attacking corn, one in Kansas in a, uh extension circular that they have, uh, but no actual data uh, to, to mention on, on corn. So as I mentioned, our field uh, report was on May 23rd. Um, We, we dissected these plants um, and we were really interested in kind of categorizing where they were and how they were getting in. Uh, And so it appears they enter it in through the whirl at the top of the plant. And we saw these increasing channel of damage as they moved down to the growing point. And uh, that's very typical of what we see in wheat. Uh, They would burrow down uh, until they contact a node uh, and headed, wheat they stop at the node. Um, But you know, that, feeding channel increasing at least is indicating they're moving in through the whorls. Now here's the data from from the 12 fields we sampled. Uh, You can see they're all rye or wheat cover crops. Um, They were all planted uh, in the fall, some quite late in the fall, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, But our termination to corn planting is really covered uh, by this cover crop to corn uh, with the asterisks on it. Uh, That's that's the number of days between when that was terminated and, and, and planted. Uh, And so you can see the PLAS indicates these were almost in all cases fields that were planted and then terminated. uh, You know, and making this this, uh, green bridge um, for this particular insect as it was completing its development. We have a range of symptomatic plants uh, taken at five locations within each field. uh, So that range represents the variation between those locations. And then we have the number of larvae recovered as well as the larval size. So you can see in some cases we were spanning Uh, First through third instars, at least in the first field, uh, and some others were more collapsed. This also represents the time of sampling uh, as we move through the field. Um, I highlight these two boxes because, uh, you know, one of the big questions that's come up to me is is when the infestations are occurring, when are they getting into our our cover crop systems, Uh, and these two November plantings, although I wasn't present in these fields and don't know when they actually emerged, um, really at least highlight to me the potential that some of this might be happening in the spring uh, because these plants are not likely present while adults are moving in the fall. Uh, and so it's something we're really focused in on this spring is, is trying to understand when are they arriving uh, at the cover crop, how can we estimate risk as early as possible uh, from our cover crop to corn transition system. And so th- hopefully this figure kind of isolates this for you or at least uh, demonstrates some of our understanding uh we have the the months here on on the the bottom of this in our two thousand and seventeen field problem so all of the little bars within that indicate when a herbicide application was made the range of those applications uh the corn plantings uh that would have would have occurred and some of these were repeated applications so they appear earlier but growers actually came back afterwards and terminated again uh, and then uh, that previous fall when they were they were planted the range over which they were planted and if we bring up the the developmental cycle for uh wheat stem maggot Uh, this is from kansas or kansas data Um, you can see when adults would have been present in this system uh, which overlaps with the cover crop in the spring Um, and then the tail off of those adults uh, in the fall really by october at least in kansas on we're, we're referencing 80 year old literature so we have to be cognizant of that but uh you know, this is where we're really focusing our efforts this spring is when are we seeing adults moving relative to cover crops? And is that the first point of contact uh, where we have potential risk? Uh, obviously, the eggs uh, begin to show up while the cover crop is still uh, present and then the larvae. So you can see how close this this particular scenario is uh, to potentially missing a cover crop uh, entirely. But uh, it really asks the question, you know, why why was 2017 such a problem when 2016 wasn't? Um, and several factors go into that, but this helps us kind of at least identify the risk. Uh, so there's there's this Allen uh, thesis document uh, that we've recently got a hold of uh, that actually indicates the date for them in April 15th was their first emergence of adults. Uh, we'll be doing that here in Nebraska uh, to confirm. And then Bruner and Swank in 1907 uh, reported three generations in Nebraska. So this is a, a partial fourth generation system that you see from uh, what was done in South Dakota by Allen and Painter, but we have uh, what is in at least an indication from 1907 um, You know uh, a little less uh, than that. So uh, Something to consider at least uh, going forward on this So uh, our current hypothesis on this is wheat stem maggots uh, either late eggs in, in fall or as you what you've just recently seen early spring on wheat or rye cover crops and they were in some larval stage of development at the time of cover crop termination uh, and then the larvae moved to corn to complete their development um, and I, I use this this photo here to the right to kind of highlight that because uh, we had a lot of questions about adults laying eggs on corn plants. But I think this speaks fairly well uh, to larval movement. Uh, you can see that the dead cover crop. This was uh, planted for erosion control uh, on on a slope within the field. It was a patch planting which we saw a few fields like this and uh, was the same in all cases. Uh, but you can see that that orange line differentiates where the cover crop is present or absent where it's absent, which is just within a few feet of the cover crop, uh, you don't see any damage. So at least it, it adds evidence that this, this uh, could be larval movement uh, between those plants. And I get a barrage of questions, uh, which is great. I always appreciate those, um, uh, about how many uh, you know, cover crop plants need to be infested for us to see significant damage. And these are things that, that might come with time, uh, but certainly I'm concerned about the sampling process and how long that would take. And so we're really focusing our efforts further on something that's easier. Uh, the yield impacts were not clearly defined on this. Uh, you know, Hindsight is 2020. 20. I wish I'd, I'd probably spent more time trying to isolate that. Um, but initially when I looked at these with growers, I, I probably scared a lot of them uh, because we were looking at tillers. And any time you're looking at a tiller, you've certainly reduced yield already. But the question is, are they going to be productive tillers? Or are they going to produce a tassel ear, which is uh, really not anything a grower wants to see in his field? Uh, my other concern was the competition between these plants. Uh, so, with increased competition, uh, these plants may be non competitive plants that don't produce an ear at all. Um, and when I called growers later in the season to get some reports, at least those that had uh, patch plantings, and informed me about 30 uh, bushel yield loss, which uh, surprisingly, some of them were happy about just given the stat, you know, with it, the way things sat. And these were some of the more heavily infested fields with 50% of plants infested. Uh, And there's there's probably a relationship between the percentage infested and and yield impacts. We may have more non-competitive plants. So again, something that we we need to work on uh, for the risk side of this. We have a number of current projects that are going. Uh, We've uh, collaborated with Janet Noble and and Travis Prohaska, two researchers up at at North Dakota State University. Um, They have some data on wheat stem maggot mostly focused in wheat, uh, but we're interested in first emergence and getting like you saw in the rest of this presentation, a degree day model uh, to help us understand when they first show up, does it overlap with the cover crop? Is there a need for increased scouting? Uh, so uh, that will really be helpful this spring. And we'd certainly, uh, anybody else that's on this call or others that you might know that are willing to help us with this, um, we'd, be, we'd be more than happy to uh, provide you with some of that as well as identify the insects if you're concerned about that. Uh, so we've been sampling at South Central Egg Lab. Already this year, we were out on March 2nd and, and uh, 9th and we'll be out again this Friday. We're pulling whole plant samples because they're quite small right now. It's not even uh, practical to sweep these, uh, but we've found no signs of wheat would maggot eggs yet. So, uh, and we would expect that just based on the historical literature, uh, but I prefer to cover my grounds and, and represent zeros at any time there's an opportunity in the system uh, if, if that's the case. Uh, we've also got some molasses traps out there that uh, have yeast in them and some time-lapse cameras on them in case the adults show up uh, in, in the time that we're not there. Um, it's an indication by some of the old literature they're attracted to that. And then we're evaluating a different cover crop species, uh, wheat, rye, and triticale. Triticale, at uh, least uh, anecdotally, got proposed to us as a non-host uh, for wheat stemmeg. And I know it's an expensive cover crop to grow, uh, but we certainly want to evaluate it under pressure. And uh, I have another student, Julia, that's arriving from Brazil, it's uh, working with Bob and I uh, to, to really get in detail and, and, uh, and determine that. And then uh, another thing we're focusing on is, is when they move following a herbicide application. I know this gets directly to the heart of a lot of the questions people are asking, which is, uh, you know, if I'm gonna apply an insecticide and need to control these because of a large population, when are they likely to move between the two uh, systems? So hopefully we'll get some answer with that. Uh, as far as management in 2018, uh, seed treatments, there was a trial that was naturally infested in 2015 that Wayne Onisorg was uh, monitoring. There was no signs of of any uh, control uh, from that particular seed treatment, even at the highest rates of clothianidin. So at least that particular treatment is not showing any uh, real promise. Uh, Tank mixing insecticide determination, if you read the article, this is almost verbatim from it. Uh, The time of death of the cover crop uh, and the movement of wheat stem maggots between cover crop and corn uh, is not known. Uh, but if it's anything like uh, common stock board, it's delayed either 11 days uh, with a uh, Roundup application or if you're using Gramoxone or Paraquat five days is when they recommend actually making an application with an insecticide. Um, so you're unlikely to have enough residual insecticide to carry through uh, that time frame. And as we mentioned at the start of this talk, there are beneficial insects in the system. So when you are thinking about applying insecticide, you may be uh, getting increased pressure from other insects because you're cleaning that system out. Uh, according to uh, the Merle uh, thesis paper, uh, grazing had little to no effect on on the maggots. And I've been asked that question uh, a couple times, primarily because of where they feed. They're right at the base of the plant. Uh, this is certainly something we could look at, uh, but it's not showing any promise according to uh, what he found in in uh, the 1933 paper or thesis that he had. And then timing of termination. You know, if we're going to provide providing recommendations on that, I know if uh, particular consultants online, I talked to him a week or two ago, he had a 14-day prior to termination and had problems in the system, and so that adds a bit of caution to something like this, but I think extending the termination will certainly help in this system. Relative to his situation, we don't know when the cover crop actually died, and so that's something we're going to watch quite closely to determine that. Uh, so a uh, summary of, of what we found so far, uh, referencing the old, uh, the stuff at the start of this presentation, you know, cover crop species is important, management practices are important, um, as well as the environmental factors, which means this isn't going to be the same every year. Uh, I really recommend scouting those fields to avoid significant losses. You can properly manage cover crops with insects uh, by by determining what's there. And then uh, sp- spraying them certainly eliminates the beneficial insects, and that's that's a concern as well. So I I didn't stop at any part, and I apologize for that, Um, but uh, my contact information is here, and I'll certainly take uh, any questions in any part of the talk. Thank you for your time.
0: Thank you, Justin. If anyone has any questions, you can feel free to unmute your microphone or type them in the chat box. And Justin, I'm going to take over the screen and put up the next poll.
1: Sure. I see Janet Nodal's on, so it's great to see Janet's, Janet's on here. She's my uh, NDSU counterpart uh, on some of this, this work. And so Janet has a lot of knowledge uh, working in, in wheat and trying to manage this particular uh, insect uh, in that system. So um, I'm, I'm glad to see she's online. So, so lots of information to throw at everybody, um, but I, I think I think we have some real opportunity to learn a lot about this particular system uh, this this spring because we've we've set up scenarios and and Gabby is prepared to do another survey. Let's hope not. Fingers crossed. We're just working on on research ground, uh, but uh, if if we do run into a problem, we would encourage anybody to to call us or email us and and let us know. We are working with a few consultants in Nebraska on cover crops they've planted, uh, and and those systems, so. And if you think of a question later, just email me. I'm happy to answer. Yes.
0: Uh, So, we definitely agree with you. Yeah, I know. I know you're leaning towards that. Yeah,
1: and I know, Jenny, it it goes against what a lot of the benefits of cover crops are, right? We need that biomass is, uh, you know, correlated with a lot of benefits. So there's, there's a balance in the system. I really, I really do believe that uh, Mm -hmm. exists and and we have some grants that we're applying for uh, to find that balance between risk and reward of a cover crop.
0: So So would you recommend if guys are on the fence right now regarding early termination or late termination that they just scout and continue to watch your updates or what
1: are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great great question, Jenny. You know, um, we don't want to set aside the benefits of these cover crops by early termination dates. If we can manage the system properly, uh, we don't have enough information for me to tell you anything that's for certain. But the scouting, in particular, sweeping for adults would tell you if they're even present in those systems. Um, but we're going to be learning as we go uh, on on this type of system. So. Uh, if somebody runs across that scenario, and, and I know the, the, uh, uh, the uh, ease at which it comes, at least mentally, for applying an insecticide, given that they're so cheap. Uh, so, you know, if you're contemplating that, I, I highly recommend putting in check strips uh, to determine if, if it's even going to work for, for weed stem maggot, you know, depending on how you look at the timing. I, I, if you're close by, I'd, I'd happily scout those fields. Uh, and help take some data to determine the value of that. Um, because there's certainly this, this carry out of, uh, you know, removing the beneficials if you decide to apply an insecticide. So yeah, Jenny, I, I don't know, I, I don't think I fully answered your question. Uh, producers are going to have to do it with an increased potential for risk, but I think it can be managed if if they're willing to to do some scouting to determine if the insects are present or not in the system.
0: And thank you, thank you, Justin. And Roger made a comment saying that he knows that I talk about planting green, so he'd like us to discuss this both ways. So, and, and you've shared the benefits of leaving that cover going longer. What some of our farmers have seen in our part of the state is just by having that cover, by planting green basically, they've, um, they've seen they don't see the, the yellowing impact on the corn as much We don't know if that's so much lelopathy or if it's more of a nitrogen tie-up, but that's something that some of our growers are observing, and so that's why they've chosen to go into this later termination situation. But at the same time, we don't know what's going to happen year to year with these different insects like you were sharing. And this was a really good awareness for me of these other insects that can be a potential problem too.
1: Yeah. Now, i I think the goal with that was you know the ease of scouting, you know yes, it takes time, but there is scouting uh, procedures for each one of those. Um, you know uh, Roger could speak to this as well as I could, uh, and I've actually heard it from him, so I'm actually referencing him uh, but uh, I know corn doesn't like to see green when it emerges for soybeans you know they can they don't mind seeing green around them, um, but from an agronomic- agronomic standpoint, that's a bit of a concern, and you know yield is the final thing for everything right uh, so what what benefits are in that system that way it certainly the longer you leave a cover crop um, you increase the potential for beneficial insects in those systems and as a result you also increase the potential for pests Uh, and so you know we just discussed this but they run kind of counterintuitive to one another or inverse to one another um you know for weeds having that cover i've seen the photos um and uh and uh You know, there are some very compelling photos on people planting green uh, on the weed control side. Um, And so, yeah, I I guess, uh, you know, it's going to come with some increased scouting. Uh, Planting green certainly increases the risk. Uh, We had a field, actually, that number 12 field that was in the sampling set never got terminated. They tried. I was out there uh, in early June and they'd given up the hope of of terminating what was wheat uh, that was fully headed and uh, there was no wheat stem mega damage in that uh, particular field because they simply stayed in the wheat to complete development. We sampled the wheat and found wheat stem mega in there. Uh, and so, you know, there's some odd relationships with that, right? If they're almost completed development, they may not move. Uh, so it's a very tricky situation uh, that would be difficult to predict without quite a bit of information. I, I just noticed that Janet posted on the thiamethoxin C treatment uh, which is, is nice to know, Janet, that, that you're not seeing anything with it either on, on weed stem maggot. Um, and then, Jenny, do you want me to address the other question? I want you're, you're running this, so I, I didn't want to bump in. But
0: No, that'd be great. That'd be great. I didn't want to interrupt okay. you. so Go ahead. Thank you. Sure.
1: Yeah, so the, If you're finding adults present about May 1st, uh, what would you do to prevent damage? Uh, if, if you're finding a large number of adults uh, that are present, it depends if your cover crop, of course, is still present by the assumption. And that question, yes, it's probably still present. Uh, you're certainly running up to getting yield impacts in your corn if it's not planted right away. So I, I understand the situation of having a tight window. Uh, you know, Without knowing the effectiveness of the insecticides, uh, you could try something at plant. But again, you know, we don't have the knowledge uh, base behind this. So if you're going to do it, uh, you're going to kind of learn with us. And I would do the check strips to al- allow for some Evaluation on that. Um, and, uh, and that would help us certainly to know whether or not that practice led to uh, significant reductions. Having no check, I, even if you say, well, I didn't see any wheat stem maggot, I can't tell you for certain uh, that's the case because we don't know if the pressure was present. So the check strips tell us that. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's some difficult decisions to come this spring. And I think it, it's highlighted by sampling for the adults and determining whether or not we even have pest presence.
0: And Justin, I may have missed it. Did you also speak about adding in an insecticide during the termination period and what your recommendations are regarding that?
1: Yeah, not, not tank mixing it. I briefly ma- mentioned I wouldn't recommend tank mixes because the residual is not likely to carry through to when they're, they're likely to leave the cover crop. Um, of course, we don't know that, but we've assumed that they would stay until the host is deteriorated to some extent. And so the residual. Uh, would of of whichever insecticide is used is going to decrease over time Uh, and so whether or not that insecticide is still present when they leave um, you know that would be a major concern Uh, so if there was a real concern I and and you do find significant populations I would in fact delay that I would I would take the time to make the second apple second pass on the field with that insecticide and and we could probably look at common stock for uh, you know that 11 days or five days with Uh, 11 days with with Roundup to make that second application, um, but we're we're making a lot of assumptions in that. Um, I've had some some consultants say they they may terminate and then they may have an insecticide at plant uh, if they've still got uh, some green or dying material out there. Um, I wish I had the information to help them with that. We're gonna I'm working with a few of those people uh, this spring to to evaluate that type of management system, uh, but in all cases I recommend first we determine if they're actually present in the system. Good question. Uh, any idea why this would crop up as a problem in wheat cover crops when it's such a minor pest in its actual wheat production? Uh, great question. Yeah, so I, I spent some time out in western Nebraska, and, and originally from Manitoba. And Janet could comment on this in in North Dakota. They have certainly had some high population years. Uh, But I I always see it in western Nebraska every spring and winter wheat production out there. Uh, It's usually in really low percentages. Uh, You know that one to three percent, if it gets much higher than three percent, a grower calls you and you spend time in the field looking at it. Um, But uh, wheat populations or cover crop planting populations, the number of seeds per acre are quite high relative to corn. Uh, So there's a lot of seeds that go in there. Uh, and, you know, percentage of plants infested at 1% to 3%, uh, it, again, it's a research question uh, that we need to answer, how many of those plants need to be infested, but maybe it's a population even that low, just its density, the cover crop density and the number of infested plants relative to one corn plant in that same space, uh, that, that could be the potential uh, problem around that. You know, it's yeah, it's not in any high populations where it's causing winter weed issues. Uh, Janet, I hope she actually comes in on this and talks, but I know they've had problems in the past if you had a graduate student uh, that was funded working on this. So obviously there's some economic pressure there. Uh, for winter wheat, timing of planting, I think, is a, is a rather big deal uh, in the development in the spring relative to uh, when they're, they're uh, moving uh, off of wild grasses, at least, in, or other grasses in North Dakota. But uh, hopefully that helps kind of answer your question. Uh, we're looking at you know very different densities between hosts and so, the the damage can be escalated if, if they can accurately find that host um, from the cover crop. Right, you guys any, ask great questions.
0: <laughs> any other questions for Justin?
1: Yeah, there's there's Janet's comment. Typically, we see less than 5% in wheat. However, we've seen up, up to 20% higher up to 20 and yield losses uh, less than five bushels uh, in, in North Dakota. So I, I know Janet spent a couple of years working on it. So that uh, kind of reinforces that point. Thank you, Janet.
0: I really appreciate your slides and just how um, visual your timelines are with the crops and where you were showing termination and and generations and so forth. I'm hoping that it was a fluke thing with a warm February last year, but we'll see Me what too. happens this year.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's I, I hope so too. I, I hope we're looking at this on experiment stations and ready for the next time we roll around to a warm February. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's certainly a question, uh, you know, and a concern going forward, especially into this year. Uh, Roger, I guess the increased extent of tillering in wheat uh, would affect uh, less responses, too. That's a good point, Roger. You plant earlier, you get more tillering. I'm sure Janet has quite a bit of information. The 1933 publication is full of uh, planting dates and different varieties uh, and, and the impact there. Um, You know sources of host plant resistance are also a question and and there was some stuff that showed up from 2015 that um, We probably need to look at at some point, but there's possible hybrid differences as well In corn
0: All right, so we're about at 105 and we don't want to keep you Too much longer so if anyone has any final questions feel free to ask them or put them in the chat box Maybe stay on for one more minute, and then we'll wrap it up. So please do um, share any thoughts you had on something that you learned at theslido.com. You can just join the event at 9949.
1: Thanks again, Jenny, for putting this together. I think it's a great way of getting some information out to people and uh, you said you recorded it, so maybe we can put that somewhere where people can get a hold of it. I see Travis is on too, our other counterpart in in North Dakota. Um, So yeah, I I encourage you to share with others, and if they've seen it or experienced it, um, we'd like to know about that. That would be helpful for us.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing, Justin. I know I learned a lot, especially about these other insects too, to be looking for, and we will follow up with the recording most likely on crop watch so I'll work with Lisa on that great so great thank you again Justin thank you for everyone for joining us
1: yeah, thank you Jenny
0: have a great day thanks
1: everyone yeah. bye